You are listening to sermon audio from Fort Myers Community Church. For more information about how to get involved in the life of this church family, please visit www.fmcc.life. Well, I'm super excited uh, to introduce my good buddy, Trent Griffith. Uh, Trent has been a pastor for years and years, way many more years than me, like like hundreds of years more than me. Uh, no, but um, he uh, loves Jesus, loves his family. He is working with organizations, uh, crew and family life, uh, bringing the gospel to campuses all over the country as well as church planting. He is one of the board members of GCC, which is the network that we are a part of as a church, the Great Commission Collective. Um, so that's how Trent and I entered in initially got introduced to one another. Um, and so I'm so excited to be sitting under your teaching this morning and hearing you bring the word. So why don't we welcome Trent Griffith. Thanks, man. Thanks, Bill. Um, it is a privilege to be here. As Bill has said, on any given Sunday, I could be preaching in a lot of different places, and uh, there's no better place I would rather preach than in Fort Myers at Fort Myers Community Church. As Andrea and I go into different churches, a couple of weeks ago we were in Canada, next week I'll be in Missouri. There's always this apprehension when you walk into a church. How many of you can remember the first time you, you dared to step foot into a new church? Do you remember this awful experience? Will they like us? Will we like them? Will anybody talk to us? Here's the question Andrea and I always ask as we walk in. Is there life here? And we were here in April, and uh, it took me about 30 seconds to determine the answer to that question at Fort Myers Community Church. Yes, there is life here. How many of you would agree with me that that is true? And so it is a privilege. Right now in America, there is a phenomena taking place. Whether you know it or not, we are experiencing the largest and fastest religious shift in our nation's history. It's greater than the first great awakening. It's greater than the second great awakening. It's greater than all of the revivals in American history put together. The only problem is it's in the opposite direction. There are over 40 million people who have at one time in their life attended church at least once a month who now indicate they attend church less than once a year. And yet half of those people tell us that they would come back to church if they could find a church that was alive. I love what you make me go through to get to your website. I have to type in eight letters and a dot. F C sorry, F M C C dot what? Life. And I believe that's a great indication that uh, you believe that your church is alive. Now, the question is not whether or not you believe your church is alive. The question is what Jesus thinks about your church. I've been following along as Pastor Bill's been taking you through these seven letters that Jesus wrote to seven historic geographical churches in the first century that are recorded for us in the book of Revelation. So let me invite you to open your Bible to Revelation chapter 3. Today, we're going to look at the fifth of those seven churches, and Bill's already introduced 
introduced us to these churches. There was one in Ephesus, and their problem was they had lost their first love for Jesus. There was a church in Smyrna. Their problem was they were suffering, but they were faithful under the persecution as they were being marginalized and as they were being attacked, they were staying faithful. Pergama was compromised and Thyatira was tolerating sin. And every church throughout all generations in every geographical location faces the same threats. That's why when you know, the book of Revelation has a ton of symbolism in it, and the number seven is symbolic. It's an indication to us not so much about quantity. There were seven letters to seven churches, but the number seven is a symbol for completeness. In other words, Jesus is sending these seven letters to seven historic churches, but he's also indicating these threats faced by these seven churches are the same threats that every church in every generation in every geographical location faces, which means Fort Myers Community Church, you are under the same threats. Now today we're gonna see what happens to a church if it doesn't resist the threats. Now, as we look at these, let me just go ahead and begin to read here in Revelation chapter three, verse one. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And again, don't think as much as quantity. How many Holy Spirits are there? One, and yet we see he's indicating seven. What he's telling us is he's talking about the perfect, complete spirit, the perfect Holy Spirit. And he mentions these seven stars. Has Bill taught you that the word angel here, when you see the word angel, you think of these big mystical, you know, heavenly beings and stuff. Actually, the word angel here, it's just the Greek word for messenger. So this letter was addressed to the messenger of the church in Sardis. Who's that? That's Pastor Bill. Pastor Bill is getting a letter. And so Pastor Bill is getting this letter. He's the messenger. And the messenger is not just to hear it. He's to deliver the message to the entire church. And so the, the letter arrives to all of these uh, the congregations in these places. He says this, I know your works. You have the reputation for being alive, but you are Dead. Now, as we read uh, these letters that Jesus writes to his church, sometimes I think we're tempted to think that Jesus is mad at his church. And somehow he's got an edge on his voice and he's angry that the church is dead. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Almost as if you're in a funeral home shouting at the dead person because they died. That is not the tone that we should read when we're reading these letters that Jesus is writing to his church. Um, earlier this week, I think it was on a Thursday, I was in my office and I was studying. I was actually preparing to talk to you. And I heard this faint cry from my wife in the kitchen. I thought I heard my name, but didn't think that was her. And then I heard it again. And I walked in the kitchen. My wife was lying on the ground in the kitchen. And she wasn't moving and I went over to her and all the thoughts raced into my head. What is going on? What's wrong? Is she dead? Does she have a pulse? And I mean, in a matter of like a half of a second, I thought about what my life would be like as a widower. I thought, do I need to call 911? Do I need to start CPR? But the last thing that was going through my mind was being mad at her for being dead. 
Now, fortunately, she wasn't dead. She's here this morning. She's quite alive. And um, she, yeah, you're glad. You're, she, I should have told you that at the beginning of the story, right? She's like, oh my goodness, this is terrible. But listen, my heart was bleeding for her. My, I'm like, I love her. I've given so much of my life. I'm, and that is the heart of Jesus for a church that has died. It's a grieving husband. Remember, Jesus identifies his church as his bride that he loves and has won over and has great affection for. And so when we see that Jesus is declaring a church dead, recognize that that is affecting the heart of a Savior. Every time a church dies, Jesus bleeds. Here's the big idea of the message this morning. Jesus loves his church too much to let her die. And so he writes the letter. Now, by the way, skip down to verse 6 and notice how the letter ends. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to who? The churches. I thought this was a letter to one church. No, Jesus wrote one letter to one church so that through the Spirit this morning, he could speak to every church in every generation in every geographical location on the planet. So let me ask you a question this morning. Do you have an ear? It's not a rhetorical question. Just check. Just check. All right. Now listen, I'm sure you have physical ears. The question is, do you have spiritual ears to hear what a, the Holy Spirit is saying to those who have spiritual ears? Because there's a lot of people that have physical ears who don't have spiritual ears to hear. And the danger for all of us this morning is that we would read this letter as, as though it was written to someone else. And so let's listen this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit to what the Holy Spirit says to Fort Myers Community Church. We're going to see Jesus gives a warning in three different ways to the church. Here's the first point of the message. Jesus is going to give an autopsy to a dead church. We've already read verse one. Look at uh, verse two. It says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. This church had a reputation for being alive and at one point it was alive. There was a lot of activity, I'm sure, in this church. There were people uh, assembling together. Maybe there were people that were, 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 were praying together. Maybe there were people that were serving the needs of the poor. Maybe they were raising their children together. Maybe they were opening this, the scrolls and, and, and studying the Hebrew scriptures. And maybe they were reminiscing and even singing songs, maybe even writing songs. There was a lot of activity in this church. The problem was there was activity without intimacy. Somehow they had lost what once was so valuable. The thing that had brought life to the church in the beginning had been lost, and they were operating as a corpse. I don't know about you, but I've had a lot of interesting jobs in my career. Um, most of my life I've been a pastor, church planter, leader type. But uh, when I was in college, um, I needed money, and so I had some friends that invited me to join them at a job they had at Becker Funeral Home. 
And they said, we've got openings for people like you. And I'm like, oh, it'd be amazing. You're like, I could wear, wear a suit at work. They give me a pager just back in the, the, the 90s. And so I thought, man, I, I, just, I, would, I would be so cool as a funeral, working in a funeral home. So for a couple of weeks, they let me do what you do when you work at a funeral home. I waxed the Cadillacs. I dusted the caskets. And I ushered at funerals. I've attended over 300 funerals. Okay? After a couple of weeks, they let me step into the embalming room. And they brought in a corpse. And I thought, this is amazing. This is like a science project. This is going to be so cool. And so I just kind of sat back and I watched as they began to embalm a body. And mentally, I'm into this. This is so amazing. But there was something happening in my soul that I I to this day cannot explain. Somewhere between my brain and my soul, there was a disconnect, and it rattled me. And about 60 seconds later, I was on the floor because something was not cool with seeing a body that had no life. I worked there for about two years. You know what? After about a month, I got over it. I got very comfortable in the presence of death. And I just showed up, and I did my job, and I went through all my duties, all my responsibilities, all my activities. I got used to being around death. I trust that never becomes the case for you in any church you ever attend, that you get comfortable with activity without life, activity without intimacy. Um, After a few months, I got to be in the room after a corpse had had an autopsy done on it. And I got to sew them back up. They bring the, the organs in a bag and you put them back. This is this too much information for you on a Sunday morning. Anyway, it, it was really cool. You just kind of get to put them back together. And, and it's amazing, you know, the, the job of the funeral director is to make a dead person look as alive as possible. And we were good. We were so good that we made some of those corpses look more alive than they had looked in years. And people would come and say, he looks so natural. He's dead. We just made him look alive. There's a lot of that going on in churches that I've been to and probably you've been to as well. What's the purpose of an autopsy? The purpose of an autopsy is to determine the cause of death and to prevent as many people from dying from the same thing. And Jesus gives his church an autopsy in this passage of Scripture. The question we need to ask is, what is the cause of death of this church? What kills a church? And remember, your church is alive, and so this is a warning to us. Is look, we got to be careful with the gift of life God's given to make sure that nothing kills what God has given in life. And so what killed this church? We could list probably a hundred different reasons a church dies. I think we could boil them down to two and to identify in this passage. Compromise or complacency. Now, the church in Sardis did not die because of compromise. That was the church in Pergamum. The church in Sardis didn't die because of compromise. The church in Sardis died because of complacency. 
they got used to the activity without the intimacy. What does complacency, how does complacency kill a church? Now, I don't know all the details about Fort Myers Community Church. It's been wonderful getting to know Bill and, and Lauren and hearing the history of how they started in their living room and it got too big for the living room and they started meeting this location and, and then there was this great gift and, and there's just been acceleration of life here. But um, there's, there's kind of a pattern that we notice uh, in the history of churches. It, it starts with the mission. How many, how many of you know that Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it? What that tells us is Jesus is responsible for giving life to his church. And ultimately, the big church, the big C, universally, globally, the church will always have a presence. Jesus will ensure there is life in the church. But whenever he wants to start a local church, he chooses a man. And that man, if he's smart, will gather other men to create a plurality. And that plurality will create a movement that is filled with life. Please understand that the church, when you think of church, what do you think of? Do you think of a building? Do you think of a place? You shouldn't. Jesus didn't say, I came to build a place. Jesus came to start a movement. And whenever you begin to think of church as a place, you stop the movement. What does the movement look like? The, the word church, when Jesus said, I will build my church, when he used that word, he, he kind of picked a word that hadn't been used to refer to like religious things before. The word he used was ecclesia. It means to be called out from. And so there's movement. When Jesus assembles his church, he calls us out from the world and then as he gathers us, do you know what he does? He sends us back out into the world. So you see the movement? You're called out and you're sent in. You're called out and you're sent in. Whenever you stop the movement, you stop the church. And so the movement is supposed to continue. The problem is, is that sometimes the movement becomes a machine. Now listen, as God has gifted you facilities, as God brings you leaders... If you have more finances and you have more programs and you have more staff and you might even have some, some, some infrastructure, all good and necessary, be careful that the movement doesn't become a machine. What does a machine do? It moves, but it has no life. And there are so many machines that have eventually become nothing but a monument. All over the community today, there's probably church buildings that have a sign out front that has the word church on them, and yet there's actually no life going on inside that church. And so be warned, Fort Myers Community Church, Jesus has given us an autopsy of a dead church. Is there any hope for a dead church? Is there hope? Yes, it's called revival. It's called renewal, revitalization. It some, can sometimes mean to, to replant. That's why I love the work that we do with the Great Commission Collective. And, and we're seeing revitalization take place in, in dead churches. It's a return to mission. If you want to start the movement again, you have to return to what Jesus said. I will build my church. You have to be around, uh, be about uh, what Jesus is doing building his church. Here's the second thing. Jesus gives an alarm for dying church members. Again, we've read in verse two, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. 
for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Apparently, there were some professing church members who had stopped growing. Apparently, there were professing church members that were relying upon a past experience. 30 years ago, I was at youth camp, and Jesus moved, and I threw a pine cone in the fire, and I confessed all my sins, and I gave my life to Jesus. It was wonderful. And yet, they've never grown beyond that experience. Listen, the gospel must encounter us every day to complete the work that was started when we first repented and believed the gospel. We must repent and believe every day as the gospel engages our life. Here's a question. What happens when Jesus wakes up at church? What happens when he brings revival? There's a lot of talk about revival in our in our culture right now, as things have been happening, stirrings on college campuses, you may have heard something about those things. What, what does it look like when God wakes up a church? Um, Andrew and I, we spent about 15 years, uh, our first 15 years as a married couple. This will explain some weirdness to you about us, but we, we spent our first 15 years going to a different church every week, essentially, in a revival ministry called Life Action. Life Action. To try to revitalize and, and, and to bring revival to, to churches. And that meant that we lived the first 15 years of our life in, a, in an RV travel trailer. We eventually, when we started, it was just me and Andrea. When we finished, we had four kids. So there were six of us living in an RV. It was the only home we had, basically parked on a different church every week in anywhere in the North America. And so we did that for 15 years. We've been in a lot of different churches, and we've had some moments where we've seen Jesus wake up his church. What would that look like? Let me give you just a list. You don't, have, don't write these things down. Just listen. When Jesus wakes up his church, God's word becomes authoritative over every competing influence. Every one of us will live our lives this week choosing between what will be authoritative in our life. What the world says to us about definitions of marriage and sexuality and gender and money, or we will live our lives under the authority of the Word of God, which has a completely different value system. You choose. When Jesus wakes up his church, you bring your life under the authority of his Word. Sin becomes ugly. Holiness becomes attractive. Humility becomes evident. As you move and understand that in the presence of a holy God, there is a gap between my sinfulness and God's holiness. And the bridge in between is where I come before him humbly and confess how much I am in need of fresh cleansing and fresh power. Confession and repentance becomes frequent among the body. All the things that would divide us politically, racial, racially, economically, becomes secondary to what Jesus does when he brings reconciliation and forgiveness to a body. Forgiveness and reconciliation become sweet. Prayer and worship become joyful. Instead of a duty, instead of having to guilt you into showing up for a worship and prayer night, if you're not busy doing something else, it's the place where you want to be because Jesus is there. Spiritual power becomes obvious 
And all of a sudden, you've got power to say things that you could never say without being under the influence of Jesus. And to do things you could never do without being under the influence of the Spirit of God. Evangelism and multiplication becomes unstoppable and Jesus becomes king. And we stop putting our hope in political saviors and we rally under the name of Jesus as our highest allegiance. And then we trust that no matter what happens, no matter who occupies the Oval Office, Jesus is sovereignly in control of every sinner that will sit in the Oval Office. And we understand that our allegiance is to a king, not to a political party. That's what happens when Jesus wakes up his church. In verse 3, it tells us Jesus wants us to remember some things and to strengthen some things that remain. He gives us three things. The first of those is that we're to strengthen our grip on the gospel. Strengthen our grip on the gospel. Notice here it says in uh, the second part of, uh, it, let, me, let me read verse 3. I don't think I read that. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Interesting historical fact about Sardis. Sardis was kind of set behind a, a group of, of cliffs and valleys. Sardis was known for being impregnable as a city because of just the natural landscape around it. It kept the city safe. And as a result, they got complacent about how safe they actually were. They thought no one could conquer this city because they trusted in this, this cliff. And yet there was a time when an invading army found an unhidden or an, a, a, a hidden, an unguarded hidden staircase kind of naturally in the cliff that gave access to the city. The whole army, the invading army, found their way down this staircase and the whole city was burned to the ground. Listen, if there is an unguarded staircase in your heart, our spiritual enemy will find it. And he will destroy that which once was alive. Um, about 10 years ago, Andrew and I, we moved into a new home in Granger, Indiana. And, um, you know, we were getting used to the neighborhood, getting used to the house. We were still unpacking boxes and everything. I remember I woke up on a Sunday morning. I was going in to preach at our church there in, in Granger. And um, I couldn't find my wallet. And I thought that was unusual. I remember, well, I probably left it in the car. I remember going through a drive-thru or something the day before. When I went out in the garage, I noticed the garage door was up. When I went to the car, I still couldn't find my wallet. thought that was strange. I walked back in, and I needed to take some medication. I noticed there was a bottle of prescription drugs that were missing. And then a few minutes after that, the doorbell rang. I went to the doorbell. There was a young man standing there with my wallet. And he's like, hey, I was just out jogging. And I found this in the street. It's got your address on it. Does this belong to you? And he handed me back my wallet. And I realized what had happened. By the way, all the cash was gone. Everything else was there. There was a thief that had been in our home while the rest of us were asleep. Somebody left the garage door up. To this day, it's never been determined whether it was me or my teenage son. <laughs> but somebody left the home unguarded. And as a result, they took things that were valuable to us. 
The same is true for every one of us. If you do not guard your valuables, there will be a thief that will come and take that which is most precious to you. So we're to strengthen what we have received and heard. Do you see the word received there in verse 3? It says, strengthen that which remains. Remember what you've received and heard. We're to strengthen these three things. We need to strengthen our grip on the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul reminds us of what we've received. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And so we're to strengthen our grip on the gospel. The primary message of the church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus died on a cross in my place as a substitute for my sin. That is our message. Without the priority of the gospel, a church will die. It's the number one reason churches die. They forget to preach the gospel. Churches die when they stop addressing sin. Churches die when they stop preaching the good news and instead they start giving good advice. Churches die when they become so progressive that they stop addressing sin and they die when they become so conservative that they measure the health of the church simply by good moral behavior when they think the, the good advice is enough if we just follow the good advice. And so we've got to be careful. Now, individually, if we don't preach the gospel to ourselves every day, then nothing we're going to hear at the church once a week is going to have impact on our lives. And so we've got an individual responsibility as well as a corporate responsibility. The second thing we're to strengthen is our dependence on the Holy Spirit. We've already heard this morning, this is Pentecost Sunday. It's a great day to be reminded of our dependence on the Holy Spirit. If we become dependent on facilities or finances or properties or leadership or education or know-how, the older I get, to be honest, the more I can do what I'm doing right now because I've done it before. And I have to intentionally humble myself and acknowledge, Lord, if you do not speak, it doesn't matter what I speak today. And if you, as an individual, don't humble yourself, Scott, I can't be the husband you want me to be. I can't be the father you want me to be. I can't be the citizen you want me to be without your power in my life. And so we declare our dependence on the Holy Spirit. That's why Acts 1.8 says that you will receive power when you receive the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then thirdly, we have to strengthen our participation in the Great Commission. Second part of that verse, Acts 1.8, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. There's almost an undetectable threat that happens in a church when it begins to receive 
the blessing of growing staff and facilities and finances. It begins to unintentionally lose the spirit of vision and sacrifice that it took to actually plant and give birth to the church. You know what happens? We start spiraling in and realizing we got to keep this machine going. And we lose our vision for what needs to happen out in the community. There is a vitality that only comes to a church when it is committed to multiplication. My wife is very health conscious, even though she falls over sometimes in the floor. And, and uh, anyway, we're trying to figure this thing out. She's recovering from surgery. She's doing great this morning. Anyway, um, she, she's, she's actually more concerned about my health than hers because I think she's like, um, I need you to keep living so that I can keep living. So she feeds me these pills. I have a stack of pills and, and they're supposedly natural. And the only thing I know about them is they cost 80 bucks because uh, I see it in the budget every month. They're called Juice Plus, And I just choke these things down all the time. Am I the only one that gets to choke down vitamins that your wife gives you? I, I, okay, so anyway, it's a multivitamin. It's supposed to keep me alive. Do you know what the multivitamin is for a church? It's multiplication. Just like parents are intended to be fruitful and multiply. And apparently y'all do a good job of that. I saw it this morning. And so there's natural multiplication taking place. It's the sign that there's health, there's life, and, and there's fertility issues. And my heart bleeds for people that, that face those, those fertility issues. And some of you would love to be parents. And my heart breaks. And, you're, and we can pray. And God does miracles. I hope you can rejoice when you see multiplication take place. But when a church is not committed to giving birth to other churches, to multiplying out, it begins to stagnate. And so we've got to be about strengthening our commitment and our participation to the Great Commission. Here's the last thing Jesus does. Not only does he give an autopsy for a dead church, not only does he give an alarm, wake up, to dying church members. Thirdly, he gives a promise to th a thriving remnant. A thriving remnant. Look at what he says in verse four. Yet, you still have a few. You have a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. There's just a few. There's always a few. Listen, if you are a fully committed, surrendered, devoted follower of Jesus Christ, listen, you will be in the minority. It's amazing in, in our culture right now, even as this shift, this, this de-churching is taking place, so many of you, like me, can remember a previous generation where you just kind of felt like it was, like you were in the majority. Like, didn't we have this thing like back in the 80s it's called the moral majority or something? Like, did, did you really believe you were in the majority? Do you, believe, do you believe that now? Listen, there will always be a few that if you embrace the values of Jesus, you will be in the minority, you will be marginalized, but you will live with the promises of a Savior. 
There's three promises he gives. You know what the first one is? He promises you will have my presence. Notice what he says. He's like, I will walk with you. I will walk with you. Listen, Jesus left the presence of his Father in heaven so that he could walk with us. And for his minority, he will walk with us. It's an echo of what Adam and Eve, our first father and mother, had in the, in the Garden of Eden when they would walk with God in the cool of the day. It's a symbol of intimacy, of being able to talk to Jesus and hear him talk to you and give you assurances. It's all going to be okay. You'll experience the personal presence of Jesus in a world that's increasingly hostile towards you. You'll have the promise of Jesus' presence. And secondly, he says you'll have purity. These are people that haven't soiled their garments. Verse 5 says, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father. Jesus promises you, I will clothe you in white. Listen, on the cross, Jesus voluntarily clothed himself with my impurity so that I could be clothed with his purity. Those, whatever white robes that he's talking about here, these white garments, they are borrowed garments. They are not mine. Mine are dirty and soiled like a little boy who's been playing in the dirt all day. That's the testimony of our lives. And yet Jesus comes and said, because I've chosen to clothe myself with your dirty garments on the cross in exchange for, my, for, for, for your dirty garments, I will give you a robe of white. You'll never have to be ashamed or afraid to bring your sin to Jesus. If you want to have a good reputation with the world, all you have to do is go dig in the dirt. If you want to have a good reputation with Jesus, you have to bring those dirty garments at the end of the day to him and he will exchange his white robes for yours. And here's the third promise. Not only the presence, not only his purity, but he'll give you preservation, protection. He says, I will confess and speak your name to my father and the angels. Don't, don't miss this. Notice what he says. He says, I will confess his name before my father and before my angels. You know what's amazing about this remnant, the minority? Your names will probably never be known on earth. But right now, in heaven, there is a conversation going on between Jesus, his father, as the angels are listening to them talk about you by name. Not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done. So here's my question to you as we close. Which category are you in? Are, are you part of this thriving remnant that has life, loves life, is allergic to death, can detect when you're in the presence of spiritual death, is that you? Then listen, receive the promise of Jesus, his presence. 
live with confidence and assurance. Your name's never going to be blotted out of the book of life, but you can live securely in this world. But maybe some of you would say, listen, I remember when church was exciting. There was spiritual life when I was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. I remember those categories, those 10 things of sin being ugly and holiness being attractive and humility being desirable. It's been a long time since I've sensed that. Here's a question. Will you this morning come and strengthen your grip on the gospel? Will you come in dependence, declare your dependence on the Holy Spirit? And will you come and strengthen your grip on the Great Commission and get busy with what God wants you to do and multiplying out? Maybe some of you here today, if you're, if you're honest, you would have been like me when I was 15 years old. I was kind of cycling through the doors of the church, dead. And I, I detected there was life around me, but it was outside of me, not inside of me. And it wasn't until I was 15 years old the gospel made such an impact on my life that it resurrected in me a love for Jesus, a love for his church. So much so that I've never gotten over that. And that's why I'm here today to, to multiply that out to you. Would you just bow your heads for a moment? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. What is the Spirit saying to you right now? I'm just gonna be quiet for a minute because you don't need to listen to me anymore. You need to listen to the Spirit of God. Do you have life? What are the signs of life? Do you have a pulse, a heart that loves Jesus, loves the things of Jesus? Do you live your life under the authority of the word of God? Do you have an ear that hears the Spirit speak? If not, you can walk out of here today alive. If you'll come to him and say, I'm bringing all these dirty robes, the activity of my life. I've been digging in the dirt of the world. I'm so ashamed. Jesus, I'm bringing that to you. I wanna be clothed in white. I wanna walk with you. receive you now as my savior. I repent, I turn from my sin. I want my name to be known in heaven. Even if it's never known on earth. Will you strengthen your grip on the gospel this week? For all of us whether you've heard it for the first time today or you've heard it for a thousand times, to walk out of here and recognize this world needs spiritual life. We're gonna navigate the hallways of our classrooms and our workplaces, our neighborhoods. There'll be spiritual death all around us. Will you be an influence for life? Spirit of God, I want to thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for the movement, the spiritual birth.
Thank you that as a 15-year-old, you brought spiritual birth into my life. And thank you for each one that has a testimony like that. God, would you reawaken? Would you revitalize? Would you revive those things that remain? I pray that Fort Myers Community Church would be a place where your name is known. where there is a reputation of being alive in Christ, abiding in Christ. Build your church today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.